0: specific thing that I wanted to do with my life was to sail solo around the world. So today we continue the
1: story of Alan Nabow. If you haven't listened to part one, I would fully encourage you to listen to part one now before you listen to this one. It's uh, been a very exciting story so far and it will set the scene for where we pick up today. So Without further ado let's start our series with
0: Alan Nabow and his I decided story when I met Cindy and decided hang on a minute I could take her or I could take me I think I'll take her and it's a much <laughs> better thing to do and it and it has been and I just thought oh, oh I'm not a single-hander anymore oh, that was that was good while it lasted so we we're just young and doing things and just make trying to just trying to keep some momentum, get some momentum, have some momentum and enjoy what we were doing. We weren't really thinking too far ahead, but we were starting to think we might need a bigger boat. Got a, we've got a little family now and I'd learn a lot more and what I thought was an appropriate boat for us for a, as a performance cruising type of boat I was leaning towards. We had a very traditional small yacht at the time, which is absolutely gorgeous. And um, But I, I started to learn a bit more and there was new development what was a good ocean going boat you know what I mean I was sort of on the transition between the old school traditional very traditional formal sort of sailing and the direction of how how you did things to where the new technologies were becoming available different materials how you build a boat and what worked and we were starting to have some experience on those sort of other types of boats fast racing boats we got to deliver back to California and bigger boats that we could handle by ourselves still You know, it didn't have to be a little boat to handle it because equipment modification, things were changing. We'd start to have a purpose built bigger boat. And we started to think so going back, I'll go back a little bit to Canada just be when we sort of in the winter that we were living aboard there and it was snowing on the boat, we I'd heard about it was an interesting transition because I'd been a bit of a purist. I grew up I wasn't gonna race boats, I was just gonna cruise. I was a purist, didn't have engines you know it was all very simple and a pure sort of uh, approach to how we were sailing and the seamanship aspect of that how it was and so i was aware of these events in the world the single hand transatlantic race and other things like that and and in 19 in the early 80s they started there was a race formed and it was one of the, the first sort of what's called the boc challenge and that was a race that went around the world in four stages three stops and they were both sort of 40 to 50 feet and so a new type of boat was being developed, if that makes sense, while I'm in that phase of building my little traditional boats. And I was aware of these events and didn't really give much thought. But one night we're on, we invited over for dinner onto a, a, a 50-footer. There was some friends in the, at the marina where we were working and living. And they ran a video. Uh, I think we watched two videos. And so this was 1987. And so there had been in 81, 82 the BOC, and then there was an 86, so four years apart. So it must have been two and 86. So we watched these two videos of the round world race, and they, they they knew one of the guys that had competed. One of the guys, another guy who'd competed was an, an older guy who was a very purist, traditional cruiser that I'd read about as mm-hmm. a kid, learnt from. And I was, I, was a, I was a bit disappointed at how Roth had started had got a big boat and was racing around the world. I thought he was a cop-out, a mm-hmm. sell-out. Anyhow, but we watched this video and and I remember walking home in the snow across the dock. It was like just 10, 12 feet away to our boat and thinking, man, I've got to do this. Is this is this I have to do this. And, and it was just there. It was like, okay, that gives me clarity. I can do that. I don't have to be away from home forever. It's not like I'm, you know what I mean? It was like. And I said to Cindy, what do you think? I, I think I've, that's what I need to do. I think that's what I have to do. She's very agreeable and, and encouraging. And she, I forget what her comment was, but we thought about it. In fact, she didn't really even say, yeah, that's a great idea at that point. So it was so, so abstract, far removed from kind of where we were. And I'm trying to be grown up. After a while, I thought, well, that's a bit impractical. You know what I mean? That's an idea. So I told her, I put it to bed. In my mind, it was still there, and and then when I had that opportunity to sail solo down to San Francisco, and that's a significant little passage, and uh, it's quite a rough area of water, and it's in the northern latitudes, up high, and um, sort of be like sailing down around the bottom of Tassies, and I thought, oh, this is a really good opportunity to see if I'm any good by myself. To see what I think, see how I like it, and but I wasn't actively doing that to so say that I could learn about to talk myself into doing the VOC. It's the evolution of that goal, yes, and it takes time. And so now it's 1989. We've had a little baby. We're sailing down the coast, and I that was a significant challenge for me. I suddenly we hadn't been out in the open ocean for two years because we've been sailing among these beautiful islands and day hopping and. That's real cruising when you can go to one beautiful language to the next, and it's only taken a few hours. And you have the satisfaction of executing a small passage and diving and setting up and securing yourself. Exploring and, new yeah. adventures and yeah. bays and, and it's ideas. It's wonderful
1: yeah.
0: exploration that is. It's really really nice. So we're doing that. So I'm having this conundrum really, like, hang on, this is this is the perfect life, you know. And I just keep every now and then be thinking about this long term abstract thing we're sailing we're sailing now we're working down in mexico and i'm sailing these bigger boats faster boats and i'm going you know what i can do this on my own i just just drove over this monster wave and the boat didn't fold in half and we're doing 10 knots and it was all exciting and and it's another level the strategy's different when you've got boat speed and you're not getting around so much it changes the authority you have in a fast big strong boat Compared to a little tiny boat, it's remarkably different. And I started to think this is really cool, and I, I think this is—I like this sort of sailing. And then, so that idea kept percolating. And when I did that first tough ch- trip down to San Francisco, when I was by myself and suddenly without um, Cindy and Annie, um, fairly irresponsible, I thought, "Oh, this is that—that that was a fantasy." thinking that I might just take off and sail around the world because that was a difficult challenge, just sailing that 600, 700 miles, being at sea for a week. It was a tough trip and I thought, I probably don't need to do this, you know, and that was enough maybe. And, but it kept percolating, it was learning, you learn as you go. So again, we start having that experience with bigger boats and we start talking about a new boat for us because our ideas were changing and I thought we should have a 40 for us. What was the best way to do that? I thought well, we'll sail to Australia, I can go and work in the bush again. I've been working on pipeline survey, I was on a survey team for a period before I launched the boat and... And I thought well, I could make some money, sell the little boat, we can buy a hull and deck of a bigger boat, and we could I could race it around the world. We were sort of and we, but we were kind of identifying a boat that we wanted to sail ourselves as a family that would suit us through and did wanted to do more serious things. Part of that process I still so again the BAC was percolating and one day I was talking to Cindy and I just said, I really think this is what I'd like to do. And we sort of formulated a little plan which was to go and work hard out in the bush again get some money piece of very simple boat together with no equipment no fittings hardly even fitted out that might allow us to get a bit of sponsorship and some support that would help make it a little light racing boat that would become our family fast cruiser so that was the initial idea that was a way to work Well, continue, you know, what, and I'd build it, you know, I'd be able to fit it out myself and, you know, and if we got some corporate support, then that would be good business to go and do the race and, and then carry on and do what we were always doing. And we met this old guy who was developing a different type of fast offshore cruising boat that could race, you know, it was a very fast boat, especially at the time. And he kind of was hinting that he might lend it to us and we could go and do that race, which was, you know, going to be in 1990, the next edition was, after we saw that video and were inspired about it. So we kind of went down that path a little bit, working with him and talking to him and trying to work out a deal and how I could achieve that. And he had some interest in promoting his boat and things like that. But it just ended up not going anywhere for various reasons, so... We thought we, but by then the seed was saying that we could probably should just go and sort ourselves out. So we're in Mexico we're having fun and we're thinking which way we're going to the Caribbean, go home, build a boat. And then by then we thought, well, the next race is in four years time. We could probably do that, go and fit out a, a little lightweight boat and turn up. So we started to decide. So we thought, well, if we're going to do it, we, we need to go home now. It's going to take us a year to get home. We should head home and see how that might work out. And then the priority though at the time was probably just for us to go and get a bigger boat and work out what we were going to do with our lives, and how we were going to keep cruising. So then we we set off, and by this time we started. By the time we were ready to leave Mexico and head home, we started telling our family heading back. Cindy was um, pregnant again with our second child, so we thought, oh, this is this is what's happening here. But that was all right. Again, it gave us a timeline then to get home. Maybe, things like that certainly was, wasn't negative. But it just gave it a, a different, a bit more, um, a little bit more pressure on that long voyage that we're about to undertake because it's a health issue. Growing a little baby inside, and we're going out into a rigorous environment. and We already had our little eighteen-month-old baby with us. So, but again, it wasn't that wasn't. We weren't really even thinking like that at the time. We're just doing our thing, and we're ready to sail. But um,
1: so, Annie and Cindy sail back all the way with you.
0: No, no. What happened when we left Mexico, um, we had quite a tough trip out to French Polynesia. We stopped at the Marquesas Islands, which is sort of easternmost through French Polynesia. There was another 3,000-mile passage, and it was through – because we were going from the north to the south hemisphere again, transiting different weather regions, and we're dealing with counter-currents and all this – So it become, and again, a little boat, we didn't really have an engine or any fuel that we could motor anywhere. So we were relying on good conditions and we didn't have much wind. So we were really, I think the first half of that leg took 21 days and the second half took nine. And so that first half was really, really difficult. And it was mm. stinky hot. We are on the equator for a long time. Annie, Annie became unwell. She'd picked up a bug just as we left Mexico. She'd never had any issues with water, you know, parasite things it was. She ends up with an amoeba and sort of dysentery. Cindy's got this little baby. She's growing. It was pretty um, hard on both of them. Um, and um, so Cindy wasn't putting on any weight or anything, and she was pretty physically st- stressed her body and annie was pretty run down so by the time we sort of stumbled staggered into either are and in the marquesas she was pretty tired and we thought we probably need to get you home to have a rest and get healthy you know
1: and recuperate
0: so we met a doctor there as soon as we got there we went and saw a doctor and she had a, a pill for annie which helped um kill that bug in her and helped her she immediately started getting better and which was really good. And she checked Cindy out and she said, Well, you guys want to stay in French Polynesia and have the baby? She was a French doctor. Mm-hmm. Said, we can sort that out. You guys can just hang out here and have a baby, and it'll all be good, no problems. But we felt we needed to get them home and stay on track, I guess, because by then we were. Committed to this, we had a four-year time plan, which was only three years really, because by home, so we could only be in Australia for three years before we had to leave to get sail halfway around the world to start the race. So yep. we were starting to think along those lines, but we don't have a lot of time in, and it was really important that she just needed to be still and get strong again. Flew home from the French Polynesia, I had to tap my dad alone. That was a bit embarrassing, but anyway. So the girls flew home and got some good attention so back in Newcastle so that was really good for them and then I had uh, almost 5,000 mile ahead of me now to get the boat home before she's Cindy's had the next baby and normally you do a trans-pacific people do it over years so we did our first one in five months and now we're going to do the next one in similar amount of time normally you'd amble and have months in each area and just really get to know it so even though we were still fun, it was exploring and we loved the area, but, but I had to turn that trip home again into a two-stopper. So I, I made, I'm not sure if I left one. So anyway, I the, uh, the day after Cindy left, so she must have flown, had a night or two in Tahiti and then flew to Australia. And once I knew she was in Tahiti safe and had a ticket organised, I took off and sailed 800 miles down to Tahiti. So following her now. And then had a few days there, and then sailed from there to Tonga, and then from Tonga back to Australia. So they they were big passages, and we arrived in Australia in 1991. I actually got the boat into Lake Macquarie at um, on Vance, our son's due date. Thankfully, they waited a couple more weeks until he arrived. So I was every time I stopped, I just got email. I got a, a letter off Cindy at the post office, and I read she was all right, and I rang her up collect, and then. Headed off again as soon as I can, and then sort of making a beeline back home.
1: Back in Lake Macquarie and uh, preparing again for this next stage, the next challenge ahead of you. This is now in the in the serious building up and getting ready for BOC. So now we're into this phase where we're in the preparation mode for building the Newcastle Australia yacht ready for the race. Yep. What's the greatest challenge you initially had to overcome to be able to make this idea become reality
0: we we're young and we we're optimistic we couldn't see everything all at once and we still had our plan of a nice little 40 footer simple boat it would just scratch in as a minimum size of into the race thought probably for a hundred thousand dollars we could have a nice yacht so we had no idea we didn't have a budget we didn't know we we had a boat a particular design that i thought i was aiming for so that gave us a bit of direction so we started there and we started presenting that idea. And when it was a really bizarre experience because I arrived home into Newcastle and Channel NBN had heard about us and the, the newspaper had remembered us leaving. We had a front page on the Newcastle Herald when we left. So people kind of are a little bit aware of us, if that makes sense, or some people remembered and the media thought they'd jump on. So they, they came up and jumped on the boat and took some footage and they were aware I was thinking about the BOC some there's been a little article somehow and all these guys are thinking about going racing, and I don't know how, where that came from actually but anyhow so we're chatting Andy Lobb and anyhow so I'm thinking they're just going to say here's this young couple they're back from a grand adventure and that's what the story would be and he runs with the we've come to us back home to go and race around the world with this you know the BOC challenge and so he in it, well, inadvertently to us, but anyway, um, NBN launched our campaign the moment we arrived. People started talking about it. That was a little bit confronting because we didn't have any momentum at that time. Yeah. got to find a job. We've got to find an apartment that we can rent. The idea is
1: still in incubation. We and...
0: a, yeah, we've got a baby due next week. I've just been concentrating on sailing home, obviously not talking or communicating with anybody um, about it um, outside our little ourselves really but anyhow suddenly we were launched it felt a bit like an accident and i was a bit stressed at first i thought oh well it's kind of what we're doing which was really good because when we started talking to people about it they knew about it so it was, yep. oh, it was it always yeah. yeah it was already out there and that probably was really good for us because it gave it context we've been out there we've been doing some serious sailing we kind of knew a little bit about what what we were doing and this might not be so out of context but you mentioned earlier we didn't have any money just come back you know we staggered home that was all good though and then you know the immediate focus was i guess the challenge first was how do you rent an apartment when you've never rented one you know, go through that whole process. We didn't have any money. Anyhow, I got a job in two days and then we found a brand new little duplex that was being built that we were able to just put our name, you know, okay, we'll rent that, please. So that was good. Things started happening on yeah. the family scene. We could get established and um, catch our breath a little bit. Just, so we just moved into that apartment as Cindy was ready to have the baby. Um, young couples and new families and that we didn't have any furniture or anything. We just sort of sleep it on the floor almost. And, but it was brand new building that was clean and nice. So we felt pretty good. And yep. anyhow, so then, so we'll concentrate on immediate things, which was to just get, get landed, have a, have a healthy little bub and, and start again. And, and so I was, I, I was working again and, um, you know, on a construction site up at Tomago, the smelter. They were doing a big expansion. So I was able to get up there and working with one of the concrete supply companies. And then, then we started to establish some contacts in the area talk to people and start to define the project itself, what we needed to do really, realistically, would the boat I was thinking about to be suitable for the family, would that really be suitable to present as a racing boat and, and, and ask people to support that as part. The whole program, it grew as we went along and as we learned a bit more, we realised that we needed to probably take it up a notch to a higher level and then we, we founded a, a yacht designer who we enjoyed working with and so we started collaborating with him to design the new boat. We kind of started out after this nice, simple 40-footer to we suddenly jumped up to this 50-footer that was going to be one of the fastest boats on earth, one of a new generation of that type of long-distance, single-handed racing boat. So it was water ballasted. Yeah, I'll try not to be too technical, but it was a cutting-edge boat, and we've just come off this little traditional sloop you know so it was really exciting to have these conversations and learn about what might work and if that was achievable and we started to present that as an idea to people initially when we found some early supporters actually said well we think we're happy that we like you guys we want to work with you but we think we probably need to go for something more competitive and then that gave us then the confidence to start looking at that higher level Mm. and and to come up with this one off brand new creation of at the time was one of three or four boats that capability on the planet so our budgets now increased 10 times and <laughs> um weren't phased we just kept doing it we just kept meeting people kept talking about it kept learning about it i entered the race when we hardly i think the first pay packet i got we sent money to england and entered the race i was one i think i was technically the first entered in the race Okay. That next upcoming series. But there's always a couple of people that have done it before that they, they get those early slots. But I sent my deposit off and said, I'm coming. And then we would, we would just, I was working hard and they were to come home and we'd have meetings with people that started to gather around us that were offering us advice, business people, engineer types and people that were used to doing high-level projects, understood the, the process and nothing at all to do with sailing. But they just understood logistics and how that things worked, and mainly on the financial end. But how are we going to make this happen? now? this is what this is a timeline we've got to achieve.
1: Yeah, moving it from from the uh, from the challenge and the idea and the sailing through to the business. This is I've got to market this. I've got to grow this. I've got to sell myself. I've got to yep. raise my profile. You know, I've yep. got to be engaged with community. I've got to you know all the business side of things, and they're just as relevant to any idea and yes. getting it launched. And it's often where a lot of Professional people who are quite good at their skill and their trade have to make now a transition into being understanding how business is going to work, how business is going to grow and develop, and and it needs all these other skills and aspects. And we don't have those internally, so we've got to move from, from that thought and idea into building a support wall around us people who do have those skills and ability and draw them into our dream team.
0: Yeah. And that's what was kind of happening. It was amazing. Some of those were pretty confrontational meetings, you know, they'd be up front and say, well, really, is this realistic? You know what I mean? Or they'd say things that were probably a bit off-putting. But trying in a way to be realistic, whereas we just had this deep knowing, it just we just knew this was something we could achieve. Again, I say we, as in me and Cindy, because we were we were in agreement and we were working together. But like you were saying, we didn't know we had to start a business. We didn't know we had to understand all those other things. But so the learning curve again was really steep. It was like we were running really fast all the time. Mm. <laughs> it was pretty hectic, and it was a big challenge for it was probably a bit all-consuming, which is probably a little bit hard on the family dynamic. That's something that I had to learn to watch a bit, probably not in that three-year phase, but later become apparent that I probably ran a bit hard and fast. Just
1: it was like we're
0: on a critical path from day one. Yeah, a million things had to happen.
1: There's a lot of people who talk to me about work-life balance. And one of the things I say is that, you know, work-life balance is nearly unachievable. You know, the reality is what you need to aim for is work-life harmony. And the difference between balance and harmony is when we're going for balance, what we'll do is we'll often end up guilty because we're doing something and then we should be doing something else and then we're doing that and we think we should be doing something else. And this whole balance is, is so difficult to manage. But harmony means that you can be enjoying both parts of your life at the same time but being aware of where you need to focus at any point of time. And working with harmony is so much more enjoyable than trying to get this mythical balance in place.
0: That, that is a challenge. Mm. But at that point in our life, I think we were just on adrenaline. We just yes. moved very fast and there was yep. a lot going on. But it was so much fun. Like we, we had a ball. And Cindy just fell right into it because she, she was fantastic working with all the other people, understanding all that dynamic of the business side of things and working working in that team. So she led a lot of that. She was at every meeting and the kids just got bounced around and they'd sleep on the floor and things like that. It all, all went to Nan's. We had, her parents were nearby, so they were pretty yeah. helpful at that time. Yeah. And, but it really was starting. It was a startup. It was a whole big thing going mm.
1: on. So you've got the boat. The boat's built. The boat's ready to be launched. You've gathered community support. The whole of Newcastle's really got behind this idea. There's private investors, corporate investors, even city investors. Yeah. And we're looking at raising the whole profile of, of Newcastle with this boat. And you're ready to launch. What did it feel like, you know, parked in, in Newcastle Harbour, ready to set off on, a, on an adventure that, you know, is is impossible to program, you can design it, but you can't program because there's so many variables. What what's in your heart? What's your feelings?
0: Yeah, we, we were just it was just incredibly exciting because to get to that point again, it didn't happen very fast. It took a long time to get that support. We got some initial early support, and it was fantastic. And those people stayed with us the whole time, but there wasn't much money coming at us. It was it was very difficult. But we had a you know a lot of uh, town uh, city leaders and people in the community that had good had profile and businesses and things that could kind of give us some resources, you know, even a secretary to type up some stuff, all that really practical stuff that people were happy to help out with. It, and especially as they got to know us and getting to know us. And, and so it sort of ramped up, but we wanted to have the boat ready to launch because this race is going to start in September 94. So we arrived home say August, 91 so we got 3 year window to be at the start line and then so we got out so over a period of a few months we developed this design and it was really just a sketch of it was a shape you know it wasn't specific it wasn't all detailed yet because that cost more money so we yes. were doing bits of it as we went wanted to have the boat in the water for a year before we left to sail another 11,000 miles to um to the east coast of the states we had to cross the pacific again go through panama and, and another 1,800 miles around to Charleston in South Carolina. That would be our delivery voyage, sea trial. So we thought we'd have it in the water for a year and get all the bugs sorted out. And we didn't have that uh, ability to do that because, and ended up the boat was launched sort of moments before I needed to leave. It, it made the whole thing very a uh, risky venture because mm. because and people were starting to drop us all. We'll get, we had a lot of criticism we had a lot of a lot of negative pushback from people at all different levels people you know they just thought this is not going to happen it's just, it's ludicrous and so anyhow when the boat turned up in Newcastle came down brambles were an early backer and they provided heavy vehicles to move this thing around this gorgeous white thing turned up and it came down to the main street in Newcastle and turned around and drove along the foreshore, we got as much support that week that it arrived in Newcastle as we did in the previous two years.
1: Wow, that's... uh...
0: it It was unbelievable, whereas we wanted to have the boat in front of everyone for a year earlier so they could understand what it was and they could see our vision and understand that it was a beautiful boat and it was cutting edge and it was competitive and it was doable. So we didn't have that opportunity to really show... Boat, we could have done Sydney Hobart and things like that as a workup sailing. Yeah. Had people involved, and that's how you do a program now. It's t- totally different to back then, and it was still it was it was a cutting edge. It was a new era, and these boats were experimental. Just yeah. the fact that we were able to even do that was amazing. Mm-hmm. So we launched the boat, and I had to basically leave like that week because we got a little bit of money. Yet. So '93 we started. We just laid up. Probably halfway through the year, we laid up the moulds, which is a kind of form of the boat that we could build it around. And we started this one-off structural construction process. But we we only got a few weeks into it because that's all the money we had. So we had this object on the floor of this big shed that I knew was beautiful and everyone else that looked at it could understand it, but it was all was unpainted and it was just being formed we're fairing it and torture boarding it and, and the shape was there but we didn't have the money to turn it over and start to fit out the hull and build the deck and do the inner skins of that structure so it was it was just sitting there and we so so we knew it had life but it was potentially gonna not ever come out of that shed and we got a little bit more support where we were and we we're working with a boat builder um an old friend who become a friend of ours and later we went into business with it. the boat builder actually went with us and said, okay, guys, he looked look me in the eye and say, you're, gonna, you're not going to leave me out, are you? You're not going to leave me in the lurch? And we kind of went, no. And, yeah, so we moved on. So we had financial issues as we went, but we got a little bit more money at one point where we were able to complete the boat and get it up to Newcastle. And that, that showed everybody that we were serious and we were here.
1: So that's that's a huge mission just to be able to launch the thing. Uh, often harder than what it is to sail it. It's, but but then you then you're off. You're yeah. off. You're leaving Newcastle Harbour. Yeah, we're only back. in the
0: area for probably a couple of weeks, really. Um, yeah. Maybe not that long. And we left. It was June or July now, and we wanted to again. We wanted to leave like in May. So we had 65 days to sail nearly well, 11,500 miles, which was cutting it really fine. But anyway, so we left. Hey? How many
1: days did you arrive before the start of the race?
0: We arrived, there was a cutoff date 10 days prior to the start at noon on a particular day. And we arrived an hour and a half before noon on that day.
1: That's probably the only time that's ever happened in the history of the race, as well.
0: This sort of effort usually attracts,
1: <laughs> yeah, a lot of comment, a lot of, a lot of interest. You know, are they going to make it? Is it going to happen? Can they do it? It's uh... so well, you're it's in a hard
0: there. game when you put yourself out there like that to take do something that's a bit out there. People don't they don't have your confidence. Not everybody. Accepts that you might pull this off.
1: How did you find dealing with that sometimes?
0: We just kept going. I was yeah. oblivious. Pissed. I actually felt a bit hurt sometimes with a few things that happened along the way, with the way things were done or people promising things and then, nah, not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, but we won't go there. But it, it was a bit confronting at times, but we were just, we just knew, we kind of knew we were going to do it and just worked towards that.
1: Yeah, and leaving behind discouragement, disappointment, dis- uh, distraction, frustration, and then just staying faithful to what it is you believe you're meant yeah. to do.
0: Yeah, we were focused and just yeah. unwavering. Really, that was really good because it was a very big thing to do. That was much harder than sailing around the world. Yeah, doing that was extraordinary. The sailing part, I could do that.
1: So then you're off. You're off around the world. Yeah, the gun, the gun fires the. The boat's launched. Can you believe it's happening? What, what's it like for you to to sail out of that harbour, saying, "Yeah, I've got, I've done all of this, this whole project, but all it's done has got me to the start of what it's all about."
0: I, I don't know if I was that. I don't know if I thought like that so much. I was, I, I was absolutely thankful that we were there. I, I knew it was, I knew it was an amazing um, opportunity for us, but I wasn't really thinking at the time. Now I look back and I think that was quite a remarkable achievement for a young couple to do that. Um, mm-hmm. i look at that now because I'm the old guy now so I can look back and think gee that was a pretty gutsy effort and it's remarkable that that even was able to happen and I probably wasn't thinking at that level that at the time I was exhausted most of the time because I just sailed 11,000 yeah. miles and we had a week yeah. off and then I've now got to sail another 30 thousand miles so I was, I was pretty focused on the job. It was a Lot of it's all, yeah. The race started like Cindy and my brother were on board just before the start. We'd go out and we'd sail out, and then when the 15 minute gun goes off, they had all everyone had to be off, so they came and helped raise the sail and just get going and had a yep. final cuddle and a kiss goodbye sort of thing. And then it was gone. But once they jumped off the boat, I was pretty nervous. I woke up that morning a bit nervous and I was probably a bit out of it, a bit you know, there's a lot going on, and I just remember that once i jumped off i knew i was where i was meant to be and i just had a job to do so i was i kind of just okay this is this is what we're here for we've been, like you said we've been working towards this now I can, now let's go sailing mm. and um, I, I was just felt i was i was i was really excited and it was a it was a great moment it was mm. yeah but but that little that early morning nerves that i had and when you're with your family you're going to say goodbye the kids were, in, were already on the dock at that point you know and i've kind of kicked them gone and you're kind of tearing you're making all these breaks from your life and it's a full on commitment um when yeah. you go to see at any point let alone on your own so you're peeling back all these layers and i felt a bit exposed but once the gun went off and i had to trim on it was it was this is, this is amazing. This is great. i have got to sail to South Africa now. This is, I've always wanted to go to Cape Town.
1: So what are your four legs that you sail around the world?
0: So the first leg was um, direct from Charleston, South Carolina, down to Cape Town, South Africa, and then at that time, the race stopped in Sydney, and then from Sydney around South America and to Uruguay, and then from Uruguay back to Charleston.
1: So there's 181 days? of of at sea and you've you know you've gone through everything you can possibly imagine as a sailor and tell me about the rescue how that came to to be
0: uh, um on leg 1 Josh Hall was an English sailor he's a similar scenario a bit about my age and he'd had a 60 footer and I my boat was pretty good and I was actually up sailing with him and um in the fleet I was Sort of third, I think, at that point, in um, in my group, I was in the fifty foot division, and there was a sixty foot division above me, above us, and so I was mess- mixing it up with some of the sixties. As these, there was three new fifty footers that were just specific for that event, and and they were both all really fast and lovely. And so anyhow, I'm mixing it up with the sixty, and he was about ended up. Um, it was about thirty days into that first leg, because we we're going to sail. Nearly, well, anyhow, so we're about 30 days into that leg and we're just um, in the southern hemisphere now. We're going upwind in the trade winds and Josh Hall was about 90 miles in front of me uh-huh. and um, and it was an evening time and he hit a object in the water and it basically split his boat in half, cracked wow. it on a bulkhead and so he, he cracked the middle bulkhead, which was a watertight compartment. His boats were safe and they had watertight compartments, but he compromised his the main bulkhead which basically filled up to two of the four watertight compartments and so his boat was lost i got a radio message to call race headquarters and then they they said josh is sinking here's his position and you're the nearest boat so it's 90 miles upwind of me and then i just um so I just plotted his position on a chart and started sailing towards him. We're both going in the same direction pretty much. So that wasn't such a problem, but I had to harden up a bit. You know, It was I had to really focus so that I'd hit that dot on the chart in another, you know, 10 hours or something. And yeah, but
1: uh, I mean, it's in reality, it's like finding a needle in a haystack.
0: It is a little bit. Yeah. So when I arrived on site, so I got that message, it was the sun was going down. I probably got there at two o'clock in the morning and he had his, he still had a battery working. So his masthead light was working and the boat wasn't fully sunk. It was kind of getting there and he had massive pumps on there and pumping tons of water out every hour. Oh. And so he was just keeping it up with it as this thing's going down. And then I arrived on station and we kind of. We talked on VHF radio, and we made a little oh, plan, which was Josh would board his life raft on a tether to his yacht, and I'd sail around the two and and come up to uh, beside his rubber raft, his inflatable raft, pick him up that way rather than the two boats getting near each other when his has got a you know fifty tons of water inside it. It was, it was quite a dangerous thing, and I didn't have an engine or anything, so that all had to be all those manoeuvres had. to be be under sail yes, and, yeah. and and it was quite close proximity really because suddenly you're, suddenly you're out in the ocean, you've got the horizon and nothing on it, and then now I'm you know five meters away from a, a, a deadweight yacht that's rolling around in the slot. So so I had maneuver maneuvered around, I came up to him, gave him a um rope that when there was tension on cuz my boat was still moving cuz we we're sailing I'd reduced sail but it, was, yeah. but it was still moving so I gave him a rope to bring him alongside me but that the tension on the line actually caused his it was going to tip the raft over it was going to capsize and drag him out of it <clears throat> so we had to drop that and come around again and do that a little bit slower and, and yeah steady and then then so he was able to cut his rope off his tether to his yacht. And, in fact, it was his rope that was going to capsize And That's where he had to then cut his rope. And then he was suddenly untethered. So it was a bit like a moonwalk, you know. He's on his own. And it's pitch dark and it's windy. And um, so he was able – he was just there then. And I, I came up beside the boat and dragged him into, I had a low open transom on the boat. So the cockpit floor ran to the end of the boat and it was yes. all open. So I was able to stand there a foot above the water and just um, give him a rope and pull him in to the back of our boat. So just sucked him up to the transom of Newcastle and yes. then he, he clambered out. And um, yeah, I think I nearly went head first before that. But anyway, it was a bit edict. Um anyway, so Josh comes on board and he's relieved and pretty he's stressed.
1: Probably, he's probably never happier to see anyone in his whole life.
0: No, he he I was his favourite guy at that moment, that's for sure. And, Are you um, still in good contact with Josh at all? Or No, I don't I haven't had I've seen him I haven't seen him for a while. Um, we don't really communicate that much anymore. I yeah. saw uh, standing next to another friend in on Facebook the other day. But he keeps yeah. a low profile, he's doing his own thing. But yeah. you know, if we saw him, we'd have dinner or something. But for sure, that much. It was a yeah. long time ago. It was. But I had seen him at various iterations since then.
1: Yeah, is he still involved in racing as well?
0: Not really sure. He 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 went into race management and he, and project management. Well, kind of similarly, I'd been involved in that too. Um, coaching, mm-hmm. preparing other people to do these events. Yeah. So he's a bit of that too and where did you he drop went to do, he went on to do a couple more around the world races
1: so where did you drop josh off
0: he's he was on board to cape town okay so that was about 20 at least 2500 miles he was on the boat for okay so that was a bit confronting because i'm out there in my own little zone and now i've got this guy on board eating and talking mm. and trying mm. not to be too sad you know what i mean because he yeah. was very stressed. His whole, you know, it's a it's a big enterprise to do that, and he had a, a um, so he lost his boat, so he he had a pretty bleak yeah so look forward to a pretty bleak period of time to sort that out, you know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. In grief, in in. Oh, yeah, it was it just... grief. Definitely, it was grieving, and yeah, I wasn't probably that great. It, we talked a bit about it, but he talked a lot. He rang his wife. We had a long range radio. He could talk to his wife and that. Yeah. So he kind of processed that his own way, and he wasn't able to participate in the sailing of the boat or anything because I'm in a single.
1: No. Cannabis,
0: so he's just. Yeah. He's
1: a passenger. Way. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And yeah. and I found that a bit frustrating, just because I was used to my system, mm. um, and it was a bit interrupted. But mm. in the same breath, I was really happy I was there and able to lend hand. Yeah,
1: yeah. it's good. So we've we've gone all the way around the world. We yep. get around to um, Cape Horn. Yeah. And uh, the the mast decides to not play play the game anymore.
0: Yeah, so that was on leg three, 700 miles from Cape Horn, so that's the southern tip of South America. And I was, I think, I was in third position again. And then I was, it was, it was one of the best days of that whole passage. The weather was reasonably good. It was a bit of blue sky, which I hadn't seen for weeks, and the boat was sailing. Really well. It all felt in the groove. There was nothing sinister on the horizon. I actually ducked down to have a nap, just the boat was sort of ticking along, averaging about 11 knots. And then out of that blue sky, which is rare in the Southern Ocean, uh, with this big squall hit the boat, of course, it just overloaded everything and put a big big load into the rig. And there was a compression bend developed in that mast section, and it just failed. And Uh it just floated down. The I came out and grabbed the wheel to bear away. Um, you know, a bit of say, you know how to sail, yes. so you know what yeah. I'm talking about. And I tried to ease the pressure on the boat, but that that gust, that squall really was a squall, it was, it was too much, stuff, too yeah. much. And it just, and you got in context, the boat had just been severely beaten and battered for weeks in really heavy weather, so there could have been an issue developed in that phase of the leg, and it just showed up that day. It's like, it's like. You always hear the stories of a plane crashing because of a 10-cent washer. It was a bit like that. But, but we mm-hmm. did have a massive um, column failure in that spot. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty tragic. And, yeah, a challenge into the mix of what was already a pretty challenging leg, you know? Yeah.
1: yeah. So explain, explain to people what a jury rig is to, to be able to set your mast and, uh, well, a temporary mast and be able to sail the boat.
0: Yeah. Well, it's exactly that. Um, because the mast had failed, all the sails were gone. I had no engine on the boat, so I had no way to do anything um, to mm-hmm. control the course and except come up with a solution. And I was able to build, piece together um, a couple of – I had spinnaker poles on the boat back then. They don't have them anymore um, on those big, fast boats. And um, But I was able to build a A-frame mast about a bit over 20 feet high and put some sails on it. I was going the next day at lunchtime. That was – that felt like a monumental achievement to be able to get going here. Because often in a situation like that, when you lose all all means of control of your boat, then you lose your boat. And I was determined I I couldn't let that happen and I I had to work out. So I'm down there. There's no one else within hundreds of miles. I'm 700 miles from Cape Horn. I was down almost at 60 degrees south. And so picture, what's that, 500 miles south of Tasmania.
1: Yeah. uh, Yeah.
0: It was pretty remote, but I'm, four thousand miles east of it. So it was pretty remote and isolating. Yeah. That was pretty confronting. That was a big thing. It was but I wasn't too I was pretty stressed. I in that in that it was like, oh man, how do I how do I how do I finish this? And I knew I'd finish the race even Mm. then. And it was like, okay, what's gotta happen? I I was imagining sailing with this twenty foot mast the whole way, you know, to finish the race just to finish the loop but I couldn't really give any thought to that at that time and you can't you don't have time to go oh I feel glum yeah you have to say well, okay I've got to make safe and I've got to work I've got to salvage what I can then come up with a plan you know
1: so um, how do? how far did you have to sail before you were able to get another mast on the boat
0: I, I had to sail a thousand miles like that and we we stopped um unscheduled pit stop in the Falkland Islands so I was a thousand miles from the Falkland Islands. Uh-huh. That became my next um goal, I guess. Uh, that was the next thing. That was all I could, you know, I just had to get there, which meant again with that limited ability to sail properly. You, you know, you were sailing with a couple together bit that's not very strong. Mm-hmm. Really small sails, you've got to be able to um arrive and not miss those islands, you know, because you couldn't come back. Yes. Yeah, So, but I had to do it in stages, you know. Obviously, that's okay. Today, I've got a – what I did, I I tidied up because I'm pretty pedantic and I always kept the boat nice, all the lines coiled. So the boat was absolutely trash. There was big dings in it. The deck was broken and all the rails had gone on one side and the mast was laying on the water. First of all, I had to get rid of that because it suddenly weighs a lot. It's full of water and it's banging onto your sharp, metal, broken mast. Mm. Do lots of damage, and so I had to really had to get rid of that. And I, but I had to do that in a logical way, so that it would go away nicely, and I could get some bits back. And mm. so I was I was pulling, I was cutting dead end parts of the halyards and pulling them through from my end, and they were running down into the water and where they were running inside the mast. So I'd have to pull all these. I was trying to recover as much rope as I could. So I could do something with it or I could use it later if I was able to get another mast. So I'm trying to get as many of these bits as I could. So I've got hundreds of metres of rope, something all over the boat, everywhere. And I had to coil, so it was really good for me because it gave me something to do, which was just coil everything down, work out what you've got, do an inventory. Now the boat's safe. I had to chop the rig away, so that's gone, and I've got some bits, and what can I do with all these bits? You know, I was able to get the boom off the boat, the bottom couple of panels of the mainsail. So I was able to reach out and slash it and bring that with me, so I had a bit of fabric, and I got the boom off the mast, because it was still it was still attached to the mast laying on the deck, and I was able to break those pins out of the gooseneck and, and lash it down. Yeah. Uh, uh-
1: Keeping a sound mind in the middle of the kind of the disaster that's going around you, what kept you sane?
0: Necessity is the mother of invention. (laughs) And I I would have sent a few prayers up, I'm sure, help me through this. So I was was really, I had to dig deep. That's a big challenge to have that happen. It's very confronting. I was uh, professionally a bit embarrassed because I had this catastrophe occur. It's not necessarily my fault, but then you feel like it is. For me, as we were talking earlier, I'm a Christian, so I was able to step into that and ask for help, and that helped me you know, emotionally and creatively. I felt supported and was able to put it into a logical progression of things I needed to do. And then I remember having a really nice dinner and going to sleep because I couldn't do a thing. And the boat's mm-hmm. just rolling, its guts out, and it's in. You, you remember, you're in the Southern Ocean. So, the, uh, a really nice day down there is a five meter swell. That would have been at least that. And it'd been blowing 40 when the rig went on for a while. But overnight, another storm set in. So, when I woke up in the morning, it was a full gale. Well, during the night, it's not like I slept all night because I was pretty restless. But I did have a good sleep. And I remember having that really nice dinner and thinking, oh, yeah, I feel better now. And, and just, you know, and I rang Cindy on the radio was and told her. I remember there's actually a story. I think I rang. She might have been at someone else's house thinking, I think it may have been, and I had to, had to so she wasn't at home, so I had to ring at her friend, our friend's place, who you, I think you know. They answered the phone, and so it was all a bit garbled. And, but anyhow, so I had to tell her, and she was pretty devastating. Yeah. I think it would have hit her probably more than me because she couldn't do anything, and she's thinking, That's... what does this mean? You're juggling all of that. The emotional response, I guess, is what you were asking about, and that is yeah. just have to. Um, if yeah, I, I, that affects everybody differently, but yes. I know that I had a a leg up by being able to cry out to it, and um, yeah. So so I, I definitely feel that that um, was that's that's an important part of my life every day of my life. Yeah. So, yep, yep. Needing to do that and to ask for help. Yeah. And, um, so so that become then a, a really what's the short term project here? And I remember talking on the radio. To some of the other guys, this other guy, an Englishman, had overtaken me now because I'd stopped for the afternoon. You know, by then,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: he was boasting on the phone. You know, I'm in front of you now, and um, sort of still racing and, and he said oh you just take a few days get get yourself sorted calm down and i said no i'm we're, we're out of here tomorrow lunchtime i wasn't being cocky or anything but i just thought well, i can't hang around down here cuz it's a really dangerous place to be when you don't have any control cuz a boat mm. a boat that's not steering and being managed it, it can you know those waves and you get in the wrong aspect of the big seas big breaking waves and you just can roll over and
1: yeah
0: lots of things can happen beyond your current situation. So you've got to mitigate that risk. And I was in a race and I was aware that I was losing miles, so I had to do yeah. something. So doing all of that nice dinner and the tidying of the lines, because it's in the summer and summer, in the southern hemisphere, the sun's up until late or it's light, it's twilight late, so it's probably 10 or 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock I went to bed slept until four, and during the night I was trying to work out what I could do, kind of had this plan. And, again, you know, I'm not reinventing the wheel. There was another young guy, a Canadian guy in an 86, so four or five, like, you know, a couple of editions before me, he yep. broke his mast and did a, used his two spinnaker poles to make an A-frame, and it was logical that I could do that. Yes. And so I wasn't really, you know, I didn't have to make something out of nothing, so to speak. Mm. But I had to get creative on how I was going to deliver that. So during the night, I, I did. I have a good sleep. I woke up in the morning and I knew exactly what I was going to do. So I had to prepare every single component of that. What all the rigging that was going to hold that new piece, two-piece mast up. I had to. I had to work it out now while it was all on the ground, on the deck while I'm rolling around. And by now it's snowing and raining <laughs> again, and it's blowing. 50 knots, but I knew what I needed. I needed to, to support it forward. I needed to have a head, a, a stay that I could put a sail on. I needed to support it from the back. And so the sideways it was good because it was an A-frame. So I set it up like that. So the thought ships, it was supported really nice. But, but, and so I built this thing and pivoted it on the deck, but it was laying down. And if, as you know, when you lift something...
1: Yeah, the wind.
0: <laughs> ...it gets to a point where the angle, you can't lift it any higher because the angle is too shallow, you know what I mean? Yeah. And lift from above. And yeah. so I've got this thing that was quite awkward and cumbersome and tied together with bits of string. I, I couldn't get it any higher than maybe 15 degrees off the deck thinking, how am I going to do this? And then I suddenly had this picture of a water start on a windsurfer. You know how they're in the water and they pop yeah. the sail? So I tied some canvas off the ripped mainsail on the ropes and pieces I had. I had made this little, it was like a ladder up the middle of that A-frame. So I tied a big square of canvas on it and I turned, the boat was kind of running downwind anyway, but, but I made it go more specifically I was, because it was blowing in the wind. It was just skating down these waves mm-hmm. and I was able to, um, I remember turning the autopilot so I was dead downwind. And I sort of stood under this thing and gave a big like a clean and jerk and threw it up in the air and the wind got under that bit of fabric and it lifted it, just threw it up into the air and stood this A-frame up and it just went bang, you know, and and it stayed there. But it it wasn't where I needed it to be because I was able to then adjust it and get it where Mm, I wanted it mm, with mm. the rake. But that bit of fabric on it just lifted it off the deck and Mm. um, that strong wind and 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 I took off. And Mm. so then I, okay, that's the first stage done. That took a couple of hours to get to that point, several probably. But I was going before noon the next, that day. And it was amazing. And I was able to put a couple of sails on it. And I put one on initially because it was very tentative, you know. Yes. yes. I just had a little jib up and I'm running with that. It was really windy. So I'm doing seven knots again, eight knots sometimes. Start to pick up on those little surfs on the waves, and it was thinking, I think, okay, this is pretty good. The autopilot's working, and I'm going. well, I could see this working out. And then as I got more confident with the structure, um, I put more sail on it, and mm-hmm. so that I could push it harder. But I was really that was that was a pretty um, satisfying morning's effort.
1: Yeah. I don't want to cut this short at all, and we're, we're moving up the, uh, the east coast of uh, South America, uh, heading up towards South Carolina. The mast has been repaired in the Falklands. That would have been a miracle in itself, and a whole other story, which would be yeah, awesome that's a whole
0: logistics nightmare getting yeah, that, getting a mast, yeah, and and from England good. to the Falkland Islands in seven days. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> it was yeah. unbelievable. Actually, Josh Hall came into his own then because by then he was back on land uh-huh. and he, he, he got involved as um, using his contacts to source an old mast that we could buy and ship down. So mm-hmm. he, he found this old 30-year-old rig off a 60-footer from way back. Right. It was in a chicken shed, literally, and, yeah. um, and they dusted it off and we got a spa maker in England to refurbish it, Yeah. put it on a plane. So it was quite amazing. It came down on military transport that was going scheduled military transport. Right. So yeah, that was a huge, huge exercise. Last summer summer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But now, yeah, so yeah, we just get going. But yeah, well, i yeah, we're going up the racing north now.
1: Yeah, so heading up that that east coast and and looking for for South Carolina to come as fast as it possibly can. You you kind of round that corner and you're about to enter the last stage of the race what were you feeling inside
0: that was pretty exciting because it, it's all it's it was a beautiful part of the world to be sailing because of it was warm and the trade we're in trade winds almost at, at that point so it was pretty exciting but yeah the gate was there you could definitely see the barn even though we still had 4,000 miles to sail coming around the top of Brazil it was really good because the boat felt good at that point the wind suited the rig that I had because it was a compromise rig that mm. second mast, it wasn't for our boat. So we had to, uh, it, it was ill-fitting Ill and the sails were wrong and all of that. But, but we had a groove that the boat was really fast. And, mm. and I was doing some racing um, near another boat, inside of another boat for about three weeks. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty exciting racing. And, and we were in pretty good weather by then. And you start to feel a bit fearless because it's not like a big waves going to smack you. Or anything, but I yeah. still had to be very conscious of being careful and to get the boat home. Yeah. So at that yeah. point I really just had to finish. So I couldn't show off or do anything tricky, but but I was still racing as hard as I could. Yeah.
1: And you're there, you're over the line. It's real. You've finished it. It's done. The dream is is achieved. But again, it's it's only in part achieved because that's the first part of the journey was building it. The second part of the journey was getting it to the start line. The third part of the journey is is the race and and doing the race and all of the complexities of what happened within that race. Yeah. But now it's launched you now into a future where you're a different person. Yeah, you, I, yeah. You, you're you're now, you know, someone who's done something that very few people have ever done. You know, new opportunities are going to open up to you and. And and a new future is ahead of you. How did you how did you navigate that period of time? You know, even anticipating what what could be next.
0: Then there, it was funny while all this momentum's on and you're racing and I'm untethered. I'm out there. I'm, mm. I have to deal with all this stuff Cindy was dealing with, which is because we talked about we had to start a business. Well, the business wasn't really viable, so <laughs> we had a lot of pressure there. And so when I came back, we had to kind of work out. The, the i guess the priorities at the time were just to, how we're we gonna you know we had family things we needed to do we got kids and we got things mm. and i thought i'd probably go and do another race again you know i, I thought we we'll just let's we'll do this again but we'll be much more experienced and it'll be a you know a professional package you know and um but the reality of that was probably um it wasn't where i was meant to go if that makes sense um, i just had to deal with the fallout I guess of our race so a lot of that was good it's not all negative but it was Mm. another challenge we had to come back and get reestablished and reconnected and and work out okay how do we carry on how do you move on from that you know do I some people have been able to do it and make do one friend of ours is a French guy he's done this he's been around the world 12 times and it's a different thing though there's a different economy over there and a different Mm. from the that sort of sailing. It's a different mindset, and they get lots, much more support than we do in Australia, even now, 25 years later. Yes. Um, the level, we don't, there's no support in Australia for that type of thing. In a way, it was a bit of a come down, but it was also very satisfying. Back to that word I've used before, it was satisfying to achieve what we set out to do. And
1: yeah.
0: even though we had some confrontations along the way and serious challenges like that, we were still able to complete the race, and nobody has ever done that. Um, have those major catastrophes and still finish the race. And
1: yeah. So
0: at that time, that was a. In a way, it was like a win in another direction. If that makes sense.
1: Oh, it's it's one of the most significant wins that the race has ever seen, and it's it's not about how you place; it's about what you achieve, and what you've achieved is is almost insurmountable. It's like climbing Everest, but doing it, it, it is. At sea. It's
0: one of those challenges. It was. It was. Yeah, we never. Never look back and think we shouldn't have done it, you
1: know. Good. Alan, it's been amazing to have a conversation together and this story is probably going to go over at least two or three episodes. But um, I appreciate your time. I appreciate it tremendously. I like to ask people, well, what, what's ahead of you right now? What's the biggest challenge you see in front of you right now?
0: Challenges. Um, probably just to keep it all together, keep, keep perspective Right now, again, we talked about it earlier. Everyone's dealing with COVID at the moment. So, there's, we can't really see too far ahead. If it wasn't a COVID world, I've always got plans on planning the next voyage and see that map behind you, There's like 50,000 miles of routes I haven't done yet that we're planning. And uh, so, we're just focusing on, because um, we're a lot older now, our priorities are a bit different. You know, we yes. want to keep the business going well. We enjoy doing that really well. And it's, Got a good reputation, and um, so that's pretty nice to yeah. be at that point where you've got a little business. It's doing its own thing a bit. Takes all of our time, but so that's that's nice, and and it's a, enjoyable. The environment's nice. So in a way, there's not a lot of big challenges, but there always is in life, isn't there? Yeah. And, um, we want to keep we want to keep doing our business stuff so that we can keep that momentum
1: because we're yeah. getting
0: older, and we want to be able to go do some more full time sailing. Now we sort of do um normally without COVID we're like half a year somewhere else sailing and the other half we're based at home and doing our season here yeah and we've been able to integrate our kids into it we've done a lot of ocean passages with the kids as they're growing up and even as adults like Vance has done sailed halfway around the world with me, go and pick a boat up in Europe and um, Mm -hmm. fly all around the world and get another one halfway and come back and do things so we've been able to do that when they were little kids and as they got older and annie and her husband have done long voyages with us so it's really nice to have been able to do that with them and and that's been really good for all of our relationships because we've uh, had challenges together we've had fun times together and those dreamy sunset or moon full full moon nights at sea all those wonderful moments that people imagine but they've also been out there when it was gnarly and yeah, had to deal with that, and yeah. and so it's a pretty rare thing to be able to spend a lot of time with your kids, especially when they're adults. Once they, because our kids are very independent, they've been travelling since they left school. They just took off. And um, one's in Melbourne at the moment, and our son and our daughter lives in the States. So mm. they're both, they flew the coop pretty early, but we've been able to maintain a good contact by getting them integrated and involved in some of our projects. So you get them back for a few months, mm. nice. And mm. yeah, so the challenge probably is just to keep doing that. We've got some longer term goals. I want to surf and navigate again, or well, we do with Cindy together. So that's a sort of a there's a lot of other things in the meantime also that do sailing is a big key ingredient. We're going to keep doing lots more of that. Challenge is probably just to keep doing how do you keep doing what you love doing.
1: So one day, Alan, your life will be reduced to a sentence, maybe a paragraph. There'll be there'll be a little story told about you. What do you think you would like to? Have that sentence or that paragraph say about Alan Labor?
0: So I think for me though, on the ramp, on the lead into that finishing well, I think for me finishing well is it's about relationships and the important ones remaining intact. If if that's if I can maintain that pace and get on good with Cindy and the kids and their kids, I think that They'll have something nice
1: to say about me, I hope. And I hope that that sentence and paragraph is written a long way off into the future. I look forward to the adventures ahead. Thanks so much for spending this time with us.
0: Thanks, man. Appreciate that.